I look at numbers and I say 6% of patients have actually been prescribed a digital therapeutic, but 91% say that they would be willing. You look at physicians, 22% of physicians say that they prescribed the digital therapeutic, but 87% say that they would be willing to if they knew how and how to incorporate it into their care plans. So therefore, let's stay loud. Let's stay noisy on the digital therapeutic front for a little while longer till we really figure out how it becomes part of the standard of care. Welcome to the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today. And I'm your host, Eugene Borohovich. I thoroughly enjoy bringing you discussions with incredible industry leaders in every episode. And it would mean a lot to me if you could rate the podcast in your favorite player and hit that bell to be notified of future episodes. In the previous special episode, I spoke with David Kim, Managing Director at Digitex Partners. Digitex Partners is a venture firm focused on investing in and supporting early stage startup companies in the digital health space. Today, I speak with Susa Manicelli, General Manager at Propeller Health. In their own words, Propeller Health is a precision digital health company on a mission to uplift every person living with chronic disease so they can take control of their health and live a better life. But before we dive in, I've been an avid follower of Propeller Health from its early days and have spent some time with both David Van Sickle and Chris Hogg prior and post ResMed acquisition. However, Susa and I just first met at DTX London this past June. Susa's energy and GSD spirit shines through in person and, as you will hear, also in this podcast. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Susa. Susa, welcome to the DTX podcast. It's so great to see you after finally meeting face-to-face at DTX London. And for our listeners, would love for you to introduce yourself. And please don't forget about one interesting fact about yourself. Thank you for the warm welcome. I'm Susa Monacelli, and I'm the CEO of Propeller Health. I've been in the role for about two and a half years, and this is my third digital therapeutic venture. Uh, I've done one in sleep and one in diabetes space as well. And I spent quite a few years on the payer side and the provider side. And so it's a pleasure, pleasure to be here. Something interesting about myself, huh? It's always hard to limit it. I have a fascination for cars and my favorite car to drive is a Triumph, a TR4 from 1968. And I prefer annuals over automatics. Amazing. And I'm hearing the antique car insurance is typically much cheaper than regular. So that's a bonus probably. (laughs) Absolutely. Anything that helps the wallet. Exactly. Exactly. Well, listen, for some of the listeners, Propeller Health will be known. For some of the listeners, they will know that ResMed owns Propeller Health, but maybe give us a little bit of kind of the larger ResMed umbrella and then specifically Propeller Health and what you guys do. ResMed has been around for over 30 years now, and the primary focus has been in the space of sleep apnea and respiratory care. And obviously COPD fits right and asthma fits right into that respiratory care bucket. So where we've produced CPAP machines and ventilators, it seemed like a very natural extension for Propeller where we also have hardware. We were one of the first early companies to digitalize the ResMed hardware. And so the digitalization story with Propeller continues where now ResMed is really hardware, software, as well as uh, coaching and support that encompasses the entire experience. And so in the asthma COPD space, Propeller 
folds right into, into that resonance story and opportunity to expand our footprint in the respiratory space. So we're, we're delighted to be part of ResMed. We were acquired about five years ago in 2019. Uh, I guess that's for a bit. It's been an exciting journey. We've had a lot of synergies that we've been able to capture over that time. We're still a growing company, very much seeking to scale, but it's great to be a part of ResMed. And I'm sure we'll dive deeper into some of the details because obviously kind of startup vibe and all of that and being part of a larger company, but that's going to go next. First, I actually want to back up. I think you were with ResMed and I'm sure there was a day that came that David Van Sickle and some of the team members and specifically Dave kind of stepping back and Susa, you decided to take the role driving Propeller Health. First quick thoughts on taking over from David? Oh, I was intimidated. Let's be honest. <laughs> Here's a phenomenal founder, a leader, an innovator who's built a very dynamic, forward-thinking team. And my first thought was, oh my goodness, how am I going to do this? And I really appreciated the support. I think for David, he was excited to take on new adventures. Propeller had been his adventure for, at that point, 11 years. And I think he had uh, dreams of, of doing maybe one or two more startups. And it was time to take propeller into the scale phase. So as we were kind of transitioning from one to the other, a lot of our conversation revolved around how could we take digital health and really begin to scale it, leveraging a lot of the resources that ResMed had. And so that was that, that was a big part of the transition. So it was not just a transition from the founder and the leader of this organization, but it was also a, a transition in the business model and, and what we were going to do with it. And David and team had done a phenomenal job building a lot of not just the technology foundation for the business, but the clinical foundation and the clinical research for the business, really proving out the value proposition. And so now it was about setting up the right infrastructure and thinking through kind of how could we leverage what Propeller had built, but also leverage the assets that ResMed could bring to bear. And so that has been part of that transition. But yes, it was intimidating. Kudos to you to speak so openly, right? I think many executives um, kind of say, well, no, it was great and it was easy and, you know, et cetera. So I appreciate your transparency there. I will send this to David as well afterwards once this is published. So... <laughs> So assuming Propeller still operates kind of somewhat of as its own unit, and you know, you alluded to the fact that, you know, there are synergies, right? And there's governance processes and all of that. And your comment earlier about we were ready to scale, we're still scaling. I find that sometimes it's an oxymoron of quick, dynamic, move fast and being part of a larger kind of umbrella. So I don't know, unleash on us here. <laughs> How is it? You know, it's a careful balancing act. And I'd say that in a startup company, you have to run faster and be leaner. And you're challenged with having to make decisions much more quickly. You don't have the mechanisms and you don't have the proven models yet. You're still proving things out and thereby when you think about how quickly you need to do contract turnarounds, how quickly you need to potentially address regulatory considerations, all these things, when you look at startup companies in general, they have to move so much faster than a traditional organization that has a lot of pieces to move, especially when you look at ResMed, they have to think about moving things across 140 countries. <laughs> and so as we've kind of 
charted this course, what's interesting to me has been what is important for us to lead on versus what is really important for us to leverage from ResMed. Well, ResMed does manufacturing and distribution really well. And so these were some of the early items that we moved over to take advantage of some of the ResMed capabilities. Same thing on the legal front. We decided to move a lot of our core legal elements over, but we retained also our own legal counsel and our own regulatory team because they had to be so specific and niche to what we were doing versus the broader ResMed. We've taken advantage of moving our infrastructure over as well, but we retained our own engineering capabilities, again, for that nimbleness and ability to move quickly. And then on the commercial side, we've retained uh, all of our own commercial teams and marketing teams because, again, they're so specific, this kind of startup nature of the business. And so it's been interesting having to work through when and how do we leverage that scale versus when and how do we need to be nimble. And I'd say it wasn't a clear journey in the beginning. It took us a while to kind of decide, and we didn't do it all at once. We kind of made all of these transitions into phases. And one last thing on that, it's a long answer, but what was interesting to me about Propeller and ResMed is that you need to make things predictable. They need to be standardized, predictable, and documented before you transition something into a large corporation because that way it's easy to see the synergies and how it flows in. When you're still unpredictable and you're doing innovative and new things and you're doing them quickly and testing the market, that's when it's harder to really take advantage of that scale. To your point, I think earlier you said it's a fine balancing act and I don't think the journey is ever over, right? And everybody needs to do what they do best and whether it's entities, units, you know, people. So I think you'll come into the next phase where you say, well, you know, this belongs here and, and vice versa. So maybe one more question because always the M&A transactions, when they're set up, there's some hypotheses on the business and part of the acquisition price and all of the metrics and all of that is assumed, hypothesized, put in place. What was the original quote-unquote business hypothesis by ResMed? And did it change over time since the acquisition at all? Or is this staying the course? I'd say both. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mean that as a flippant answer. I think that the vision was always respiratory. And it started with how can we continue to support and expand our footprint in the respiratory space. And so I think that has saved the course. I think we haven't yet matured to the ultimate vision of being able to be an end-to-end respiratory journey, if you will, from diagnosis all the way to ventilators and, and everything in between. But I think what we have done is the second part of it, which is open new channels for ResMed in terms of commercialization. Propeller is really where ResMed traditionally works within the DME structure. Propeller is really meant to be more facing kind of a three-pronged approach with direct contracting with life sciences companies, which early on is not one of ResMed's models, doing direct contracts with health systems, and then doing direct contracts with payers and PBMs. And it really has allowed us to start to build a whole new kind of channel capability for ResMed in those areas, which is pretty exciting for us. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Susa Monicelli, General Manager at Propeller Health. Now that we talked about some of the business scenarios, stepping into the role, 
one of the key things, and as people are listening to this in the podcast form, can you actually walk us through, because ultimately you guys are there for the patients. Can you walk us through what that patient experience using Propeller Health is? This is one of my favorite things to talk about. You're going to have to cut me off. Let me start with kind of what is the problem for the patient? Because I think that we often start with solutions, but the solution doesn't matter if we don't really get ourselves grounded in what the problem is. For the patient, chronic care management, whether it's in diabetes, whether it's in weight management, whether it's in asthma and COPD, it's something that isn't a one-time acute episode. It's something that you have to live in day in, day out. And the burden of managing that disease is really exhausting. You can think about it as a parent who has a child who has asthma and getting that phone call one more time from school that your child is having an asthma attack and you got to go meet them in the emergency room or thinking about a parent who has COPD and worrying about, are they staying on their medications? Are they going to have a good day or a bad day? Are they at risk for falling? All of these things come together as real kind of life things. Now, how do you change that? And this is where the heart of it comes for me is that if you want a different outcome, Let's start with quality of life for the patient, but also for the patients financially. Living with a chronic condition can be extremely expensive for a patient, both indirectly, lost days at work, but also directly with all these acute episodes that spur up. And so when you start from kind of that space of how can we change that quality of life? How can we change the financial implications? How can we change the clinical outcomes for the patient, help them live comfortably longer, healthier, be able to embrace in life. If that's the nucleus of what we're starting with, then there's only one answer, which is in order to change those outcomes, you either have to change adherence to the medication, you have to change anticipation for triggers of what causes someone to exacerbate, you have to change potentially the medication that they're on and making sure the patient is on the right medication so that they don't stop taking it for side effects. And those are all elements that if you want to change a patient's behavior, then you need to support those patients where they're at. So thinking about what's their stage, what's their readiness to change their behavior, how are they motivated? Spoken like a health coach. <laughs> right. <laughs> you have to go back to that beginning of... Okay, now you and I probably are not going to be treated the same way. I might be someone who wants to be checked in once a day. You might want to just get your story, know how to do your thing, and then you're good to go for the rest of your life. Everybody is different. And the problem is, is that a lot of our healthcare today is delivered as a one size fits all. And so, but this is where digital starts to give you the signals and starts to really change the way that we can monitor, look, see individuals and what their lives are truly like. I think I'll add one more thing to it, which is when we look at propeller, I thought when I first came in that we were thinking about adherence, like let's get these patients super adherent to their medications. But it was deeper than that. It was something really simple that actually one of the patients said to me, which was, I thought it was like Advil. You take your medicine, you feel better, you can stop taking it. With asthma and COPD, we have both controller and rescue medications, and the treatment is a combination. If you stop taking your controller, most likely you're going to start taking your rescue medication a lot more frequently. And guess what we can do with that data? We can predict and prevent. When we see someone not taking their controller medication or we see them using their rescue medication, we can help support them to getting care earlier. 
so that they don't end up getting hospitalized. And that's where you go from thinking about something as adherence to thinking about, again, what's the problem that you're trying to solve for that patient. Amazing. And I agree with you. I think we can spend probably hours talking about every patient journey and the uniqueness and personalization. We'll touch on some other topics of this later on. You mentioned, and again, everything is an evolution and a journey, right? As you know, things around us evolve, as the business evolves, as the proposition evolves. You're now helping, you know, you have propositions for health systems, pharmaceutical life science companies, and payers. How do they differ? Let's follow maybe a little bit of the money, who pays. Just walk us through and we can kind of break it down one by one. Okay. I don't think you could have teed me up better. This is my favorite topic to talk about. (laughs) It's the first one I've gotten to work in healthcare where I have all three players at the table and it starts with, where do you create value? For the first time, I feel like I'm not just creating a device that the payer now has to pay for. I'm actually creating something that delivers value to life sciences, health systems, and payers and PBMs. So let me start with the life sciences. This one's not a hard story but it is around adherence. The more adherent patients are, the more medications they take, and therefore the life sciences companies benefit, right? They also benefit because they can demonstrate in a commercial environment, not just a clinical environment, but a commercial environment, the efficacy of their medication, because we're taking the mystery around the adherence piece out of the equation. And this is able to then demonstrate the value of the medications that they are putting out into the market and allows for a different kind of conversation around reimbursement with payers. And I think that's the beauty. You mentioned this earlier about the digital component of this and this real world data. Notice I don't say evidence, just real world data that can turn into the evidence to defend the pricing, to show better outcomes with, et cetera. You know, it's also, and I'll talk a bit about it on the payer side on what happens with when you go from inhalers to biologics, for example, and and what that process looks like, there's a benefit there for life sciences companies, but also payers. And so why don't we talk about payers next, actually? So for payers, even if we just take two or three measures like emergency room visits, length of stay in the hospitals, readmissions, when you have patients who have asthma and COPD, they're frequent flyers in emergency rooms. And When you can start to impact, if you can help the patient stay in control of their medications and predict through identifying the triggers that cause them to have exacerbations, that changes the number of times that they have to escalate the care and often very expensive care. And so when we look at the value that we can bring, for example, just emergency room visits alone for asthma patients, we were able to reduce them by 54%. And that is not a small reduction in hospital visits for the population that we take care of. And so when I start to think about it, and this is probably coming from a payer side of 10 years, but that makes my eyes light up. And when you're looking at utilization savings of $2,000 for asthma patients a year on average and 3,000 plus savings for COPD patients a year, that more than pays for a program like this. And so those are the types of metrics that when I'm looking at digital health programs in general are offer great value and allow us to bend the cost curve as payers. And so the value proposition is there. The other value prop for payers, I was alluding to this, is who should get on a biologic? Well, if you don't know if the current inhaler medications are working because of adherence challenges, you don't really know who's ready for a biologic and a much more expensive treatment plan. 
But by, again, taking that mystery out, you can start to identify the patients where the medication really is not working and they should be moved on to a biologic for better treatment pathway. So there's value there. And then for health systems, man, working in the diabetes space and getting to work for Onduo and work partnering with Dexcom, I never realized how continuous glucose monitors really provided so much transparency to patients and clinicians on what was going on and how a patient could navigate their insulin journey. And when I came to Propeller, it just absolutely surprised me how much data we could generate from these devices. And I thought about it, hey, you can make better clinical decisions. You can look at how efficacious is the medication? How much support does the patient need to stay adherent? Do they have the right technique? Are they pointing their device so that they're not getting the optimal dosage? Just answering those questions are great on an individual patient level, but the best part was figuring out that we could start to identify which patients were at higher risk and focus the clinician time on those patients who were more likely to exacerbate and have adverse outcomes, saving clinician time. And so now you're starting to make better clinical choices, you're saving provider time, and you're providing if you're an ACO, a better way of doing the cost management, or if you're a fee-for-service organization, utilizing remote monitoring codes to gain additional reimbursement and support a program like this. So the triangle has finally kind of come together. And it's interesting, right? Because again, your proposition is right smack in the middle of this, right? Connecting all the key players and ultimately connecting back to what actually matters the most is the outcome for that individual that's going through asthma or COPD. And doing it passively. I mean, look, there are always challenges in technology and different individuals are ready at different levels to embrace technology. But we've done two things that were kind of interesting. We have a journey that's completely app-less. There's no app for the patient. It's purely a sensor and a hub. They put the sensor on the device and you put the hub in the wall. And for some patients, that's the best way for the clinician to get the information they need. Other patients, they love their app. And then they do the connection through the app. So that to me was interesting as a digital health company to say we're app-less. That was a big step, but it was the right step. So those are some of the interesting things that we've had to face on this journey. And back to each one of us is very different, right? And what we like or don't like and how we approach technology. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from our amazing partner on this podcast, Chandana Fitzgerald, who is the CEO of Health Excel and as her friends call her, Dr. No Crack. Let's see what question Chandana has for our guest today. Hey, Susa. How many asthma patients has Propeller Health positively impacted to date and how did you reach them? Can you also say what your take is on partnerships with health systems such as UC Davis versus other routes to get this to patients? That is a long question. Let me start with the first part. So we've had about 140,000 patients, over 140,000 patients on the platform. And part of the journey when we kind of look at the growth and the impact we've kind of taken that three-channel approach that we were talking about. So when we look at more traditional approaches like UC Davis, where we're really partnering with the clinicians and the providers, I think this is a really, really important partnership. And I think that it is one of the most effective ways of working with patients because patients trust their providers. So it's typically one of my favorite channels to do outreach, but it isn't the only way to patients. And 
One of the other ways that we found, which has been interesting and unique, is partnering with life sciences companies in providing this kind of support for patients. And that really brought us into the realm of doing Facebook and Google ads. And as a digital health company, that also felt like a big step forward. We're not typically in health systems really prepared to do direct-to-consumer marketing. And it was a new capability that we really had to build in-house for us in terms of how do we do that patient activation. But interestingly, it changed how we engage patients now in their journey. So over the last 10 years, we've gone from a very kind of provider-facing transactional relationship to much more dynamic relationship where we recognize that patients are going to wax and wane on how they participate in a program. And what we want to do is be able to tailor the support based on what the patient needs. Like I mentioned earlier, there are some patients who kind of go through maybe eight weeks of propeller and then they graduate. They got it. They're good to go. There are others who kind of get on the program, they stay on it for a while, then they continue on their journey. They're doing well, then they're doing well, and then life gets in the way. Stressful things happen, and then they start to get distracted. And that's when we need to step in and support them even further. And then you have the third side, which is people who kind of need that constant support and encouragement in order to stay on top. And, you know, there are a multitude of life factors that affect patients and no patient necessarily stays in one of these buckets that I just described forever. So it's interesting when we look at patients on platforms and think about engagement, I think sometimes it's a little bit of a misnomer of saying, hey, how many times a week did you go into your app? That might not be the best way to measure whether we're driving a different outcome with that patient. And so I just wanted to kind of add that in terms of thinking about how do we look at what's the impact that we're truly having in the market. The other question that you asked was around kind of, we have about 80 over 80 plus contracts in terms of our partners across kind of the medium of health systems and life sciences. And when I look at partnering directly with payers, this is really a model where you think of traditional care management programs. Many of them have been around maternal health, for example, is a very common one that's administered by payers. We've really taken that same model. And because of the cost savings, as well as the better supported patients and the clinical outcomes that payers see, we've started to do direct partnerships with ACOs and payers for that reason as well. And there, it's often having a list, a targeted list of patients. And they say, hey, here are the lists of patients who would qualify for this program. Can you help us do that outreach? And so again, that kind of direct-to-consumer relationship has really come to play even in with the payers as well as the life sciences. So now we've kind of formed, again, that triumvirate in terms of how do we bring patients into Propeller. And as usual, I'm going to hop in here, but I'm going to go back to Chandana's first question and your answer. And this is where I'm going to ask the selfish question of that high personalization and where do you see health coaches fit into this picture? I think that in a traditional facility environment, when I go to see my doctor, I might get my blood pressure and temperature taken, but really nothing starts to move till I see the doctor. And then we make a bunch of decisions and then a bunch of activities happen afterwards. But that's taking a very expensive resource and starting with that. Now in day-to-day -day life, the coaches can see the data and they can actually facilitate early conversations and early engagement and more frequent engagement and then help do care escalation as needed. 
all the way to the provider. And this to me is foundationally a very different approach that digital medium has really embraced. And this is not just us. There are a number of companies who've kind of taken this model on. And I'll take it a step further. What's interesting is we've seen a really big difference in the number of the types of interactions that patients enjoy having. And we used to think that phone calls were the way of doing coaching, for example. Now, almost 70% of our patients prefer messaging and being able to message with coaches, which has changed the way that we coach and the way that we relate to people and the way that we connect with people. And so I think that dynamic alone on changing to SMS and app coaching has created almost a new venue and a new powerful tool for deploying that kind of high human touch, but across a much broader spectrum and broader reach. And I think that that's where I get super excited about having this human component to the experience. I don't think hardware alone is going to change lives. And I think we've seen that now. I think that it's a combination of hardware, software, as well as this human touch that can really be a powerful accelerant. High tech, high touch, and personalization. Music to uh, my ears for sure. This is a DTX podcast. And I would say while many companies kind of bucketed them themselves as DTX, and then now with some of the recent news and fiascos and you know question marks, everybody's kind of shying away and erasing the word DTX from their decks. But not everybody, many. And you guys are not traditional DTX company, but I thought it was kind of interesting, right? Because they are hardware and software driven interventions. You have a virtual support layer around And in season one, I actually used to ask this question and I'm bringing it back now. DTX, let's call it versus or together with disease management 2.0, aka virtual care. Your thoughts? I think we have to call it something else till it's standard of care. But I think that the objective here is to make these digital therapeutics a standard of care. And when we achieve that, I think that's the right timing to drop the D part of it. It's just gonna be a therapy. But till we have that standardization and that broad scale adoption, I think it is important to call it out because you're asking individuals who are in the workforce to do things differently. You're asking patients to do things differently. So I have not yet dropped the D part of the care plan here. It's important, I think, for us to rise up as a community and really build further awareness because it's so easy for us to move on to the next shiny toy as an industry. Right now, I'm getting a lot of questions around AI and ML, for example, and how we're leveraging those types of tools for the business and happy to talk about that as well. But I don't think that that's the right place for the conversation to move yet, personally. I think that we have not nailed it. We have not gotten to a place where digital therapeutics are yet a part of the core. And to me, You know, I look at numbers and I say 6% of patients have actually been prescribed a digital therapeutic, but 91% say that they would be willing. You look at physicians, 22% of physicians say that they prescribe the digital therapeutic, but 87% say that they would be willing to if they knew how and how to incorporate it into their care plans. So therefore, let's stay loud. Let's stay noisy on the digital therapeutic front for a little while longer till we really figure out how it becomes part of the standard of care. But once it does, then I think it should just be another therapeutic and another tool for physicians and patients. 
maybe a broader question, right? We've been talking about digital health for, gosh, I mean, decade plus for sure. Every industry that's new needs kind of a buzzword. We still are talking pilots, population tests, right? Like the pilotitis still perseveres. What is holding us back in your opinion? That's a risky question to ask. <laughs> when we met in London, I felt like you're more than capable to take risk on. So I figured I'd throw this one in. <laughs> I love it. I want to answer with some candor because I think that it's not just calling out us as digital therapeutic companies and how we're going about getting reimbursement in the market. I'm going to go back to the triumvirate model here and call out some of my clients a little bit, but these are candid conversations I have with my clients, which is for pharma companies or life sciences companies, it's hard to break the mold. They have a formula that works. They know that if I put this much into advertisement, I'm going to get this type of return. And I think that taking on the complexity of a digital companion or embedded digital, they all believe that that wave is coming, but everyone's slightly tentative in taking that first step and really combining the two and seeing how powerful it's going to be. I think the hunger is there, but I think the individual choices of which one is going to go first and how broad are they going to go, it feels so easy to nestle back into pilots. The problem with pilots is that they're often underfunded. You can't get the evidence fast enough on its efficacy and outcomes, especially for companies who run on an annual budget cycle and reward cycle. And so my thought on this is that you have to get the scale and you have to commit three years to really see how it's going to work. And some of the more innovative companies out there are taking advantage of that and learning. And I think you're going to see some of them edge forward faster than others. And those are going to be able to not only take it in the, in the respiratory conditions, but as propellers starting to support other conditions and other devices like injectables and blister packs, we're going to see that really opening up, taking learnings from respiratory and being able to apply them to these other therapeutic categories as well. I think for health systems, I think that it's budgets they got hit really heavily with COVID and the focus right now is on staffing. And I think that instead of seeing some of these solutions as accelerating, for example, I was describing how you could reduce the burden on the physicians by prioritizing the high-risk patients. These solutions feel like they require heavy technical integration and they require you to change work as usual. And again, that inertia of taking on something more when our health systems are already so burdened it's a constant kind of yin and a yang in the conversations of when are we ready? And there's this sense of, oh, let me just tip my toe in here a little bit and try a pilot. But it's the same problem with health systems. It takes time to get the adoption and the scale and the comfort. And we have some longstanding partners who continue to renew contracts with us because they're seeing that benefit. And that's one of the things about being at Propeller that I'm very excited about is those partnerships that have renewed over and over again over the years, because they've gotten to the place where they see the value. Payers, they're just so inundated. They probably have 50 different digital therapeutic companies knocking on their door every day. And for them, they crave evidence. But if you're a startup company and which luckily we're no longer, and we have over 150 published peer-reviewed journals out there, we're slightly in a different position than a lot of my peers, but we're still all vying for that attention. And it's hard because everything is bespoke 
And what they want is now where the pendulum went from one end of the spectrum of payers and employers wanting more control to now they're looking again for kind of more comprehensive solutions. And it truly comes to time and attention and knowing which ones to pick. And I don't think we've cracked the nut on being able to really take the leaders in this race forward and give them the opportunity to shine. Well put, and I probably can comment on all of them, but I will hold that thought to keep our listeners interested in the next question. So you are sitting between the patient, health systems, providers, payers, life sciences companies, but given my background, I'm actually gonna ask you, who would you give advice to within the life sciences industry? Maybe it's the executives, the life science executives. Let's do it that way. That's a good one. What I find really interesting is that like every organization, there's different levels of decision makers and the individuals who hold the portfolios for various medications, there are medications who are ripe for this kind of digital companion disruption to support the patients more, whether it's complex regimens, whether it's really keeping up with the adherence, we can kind of debate that. But the advice is to give air cover for the senior executives to encourage their leaders to take risks and do something different than what they've always done. And I think that that's where the inertia is because neither one is quite in a position to make the final decision. If you own a portfolio versus if you're a senior executive, the portfolio manager has to make the decision, but they need that support from the senior executives that this kind of innovation is rewarded. I think innovation groups are incredibly valuable partners to the franchises. And I believe that that partnership allows insights and ways of working with digital health companies to be brought forward. But ultimately, it really needs to be incorporated into that franchise and really be seen as not separate from the medication, but rather something that comes with the medication. And we've seen this both in the expectations of patients and the expectations of providers that patients want pharmaceutical companies and are giving life sciences companies to play a bigger role in helping them manage their medications. And with that permission, I think comes an opportunity. So that's what I would say is support teams and taking risks. Love it. And I called it the Oreo cookie effect because in many large organizations, there's the digital natives, the hard layer pushing, 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 right? And you need the hard layer pushing and kind of really supporting. And that's when the mushy, gooey, great stuff in the middle happens, right? So that's my analogy for it. I like that. I haven't heard that before, but I really like it. I think it's so true. I don't know if I came up with it or I saw it somewhere else, but anyhow, it's out there. Use it, abuse it. (laughs) I'll borrow it. How's that? (laughs) Borrow it, whatever it is. Susa, we started with you and want to end this episode with you. What gets you up in the morning? I don't know how many people can say this in their careers, but I can say this with a full heart is that when I was in doing my undergraduate degree, I didn't grow up in this country and I saw how we have a entire healthcare system that responds or reacts in the moment. And my whole career, the star, the thing that gets me up every morning to want to work in healthcare is we have a huge opportunity to predict and prevent and become much more predictive as a healthcare system and preventative as a healthcare system. And I think healthcare systems will ultimately break because the innovation is happening faster and solutions are coming to market faster than what budgets can cover. 
And I think that the alternate resolution and way of really supporting better patient quality of life in healthier, happier communities is to create solutions that really predict and prevent acute episodes versus only creating solutions that target acute episodes and react to individuals' crises. We can do better. And I think that for me, that is a huge motivator and probably why I was so excited to come and join Propeller because I just see a huge opportunity within asthma and COPD to predict and prevent and thereby create better quality of life for patients. Amazing. Susa, thank you very much for making the time and I'm sure we'll talk soon. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning into the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're automatically notified each time I speak with one of these amazing leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about your coach health or health excel, you can find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.